So if you haven't picked up the cue already, folks, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you're kind of new to what we're doing here at Grace Life, we're doing a deep dive in the book of Acts. We're going about 10,000 feet deep into the book of Acts. But on that journey, when we bump into a place where Paul later turns around and writes a letter, we, we jump out of that and we take a 10,000 foot view over that particular place. So we've done that with the letter to the church at Galatia. We did that to the uh, church at Philippi. And last week in Acts chapter 17, Paul got to this place called Thessalonica. And, and you might remember that it got kind of choppy for him when he got to that place. And, you know, the reality this morning for some of you is as that calendar page flipped over this week, some of you had a renewed sense of optimism, right? Like this is a, it's a do-over. It's a new day. It's a new year. It's filled with new opportunities. And so for some of you, there's a, a little more pep in your step maybe today, some renewed focus and some energy and some fresh optimism. But for some of you, it was just another day on the calendar, because the reality is perhaps for some of you today, uh, the grief that you're in right now is so heavy that it doesn't matter what the day on the calendar says. Or, or, or the anxiety or the fear that continues to haunt you is so heavy that it doesn't really matter what the day on the calendar says. If you kind of understand what that might be like, that's you today, or you can relate to what that may be like for some people in the room today then I think you've got a good sense of what's going on with the church at Thessalonica. These people were loving God, and they wanted to follow God, and they were really being strong in their faith. But it doesn't mean it was easy. And look, we need to be reminded today that following Jesus is never promised to be easy to us, right? It's going to be hard. There's going to be trials. There's going to be times maybe that we even, as they endured some persecution. And so if you're grieving today or you know someone who is, I hope you'll stay tuned. Or if you're anxious or afraid today, or you know somebody that is, I hope that you'll stay tuned today because I think God's got a word for us. So let me set the stage where we are. Last Sunday in Acts chapter 17, Paul gets to this place called Thessalonica. We may put it on the map up there for you just so you can kind of get your bearings. And Thessalonica in Paul's day uh, was a big, big city. It's still a really big city today. It was an important city in Paul's day because it was a connector between two continents, between Asia and between Europe. And the main highway of the world really passed through Thessalonica. Not only that, but it's also a port city. So it was important from that standpoint as well. So you got a tremendous amount of commerce, a tremendous amount of industry, a tremendous amount of people all gravitating to this place. And when Paul gets there, he only spends, the Bible told us in Acts 17, three Sabbaths. So less than a month, Paul was there, but God set off this gospel explosion in under a month. A powerful move of God's Holy Spirit began to take off, and many people in Thessalonica came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul began to teach them. He's teaching Teaching his heart out day and night as much as he possibly can to get the truth into them. But this mob of people rose up. The Jewish people became jealous. They found some thugs to kind of cause a mob to stir up. And they grabbed one of the first leaders at the church at Thessalonica by the name of Jason. A lot of the leaders might have been meeting in his home in this moment. And they dragged Jason and those people 
out of his home, and they, 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 they uh, put him in jail, and he had to put up a bond. He probably had something like a property bond, that if you don't cooperate now with the legal actions that are in place here, we're going to seize your property, we're going to seize your possessions. And so probably for Jason's sake and for the sake of some of the other believers, Paul gets out of town then to take a little pressure off of them. He goes to another place by the name of Berea. The same mob follows him. Same thing starts to happen again. Paul goes from Berea, then to Athens, and then from Athens to Corinth. The whole time, he had left Timothy behind in Thessalonica to watch after these new believers, to try to help them, to try to encourage them, to try to continue to teach them. Eventually, Timothy catches up with Paul at the city of Corinth. And when he gets there from Thessalonica, he gives Paul a report on how the new believers are doing back there in that city. And the report probably goes something like this. Pastor Paul those people love Jesus. They are amazing people. They're strong in their faith. They're growing in the Lord. Things are going so well. But Pastor Paul, I got to tell you this. Their hearts are really heavy. They're struggling with their grief and with their sorrow. There's a number of them that are dying, certainly by disease and natural causes. But there's probably a number of these believers that the mob now had even escalated to a point where people were losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. And Timothy's reporting all of this to Paul, and he's telling them that their grief is so heavy, and they're having trouble, it seems, knowing how to process all of that. And so with that report, Paul takes his pen, and he takes his paper, and he gets his envelope out, and under the guidance, the leadership, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to write them a letter. This letter in your Bible is called 1 Thessalonians. Some scholars speculate that this is the first time the Holy Spirit had inspired a human author to write the Holy Word of God in over 400 years. That the last person that picked up the pen under divine inspiration was the Old Testament prophet Malachi. What that means is, if that's true, that the book of 1 Thessalonians, the letter that we're going to read here in just a moment, is, was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, was written before any other book in the New Testament. And isn't it just like God to do that? That the first letter that God would want to write is to his people who are gripped with grief. Who for them, death is very real and very near. And their sorrow is heavy. And God wants to send a message to these people. He has something to say about that. And Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians to stay strong in their faith. To continue loving each other with all their hearts. But he's also burdened to help them understand something. They're struggling to understand that for Christians, death is not the end. And Paul wants to get that across to them. He wants them to know what God is going to do in the future so that while they grieve, they don't grieve like people who have no hope. That there is hope even in their sorrow. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes about his greatest victory. That's the kind of title that I would give the letter here, 1 Thessalonians. It's Paul's greatest victory. And really, I think up to this point, Paul would probably say the church at Thessalonica is his greatest victory. To see the work of God there, what God has done there, was huge. It was a great victory, certainly, for Paul. He was only there a short time, but now he's watching this vibrant, healthy congregation flourish in this major city that's at the crossroads of the world. And the ripple effect of what God was doing in those believers' lives was epic. It was huge. And so Paul sits down to write to them, to encourage them, to lift their spirits and to give them some guidance. And he's aware that as he's writing this to his friends in Thessalonica, 
they will be reading this letter with tears streaming down their faces. He's aware of that. He's aware of just how heavy their hearts are. And I want you to keep that in mind as we read this letter. We're just going to read it kind of casually at 10,000 feet. And I want you to just imagine these sweet people in Thessalonica with tears streaming down their cheeks as they read this letter. And here's what Paul says in chapter 1. First thing he says is, you guys are amazing. He wants them to know that right out of the gate. Pastor Paul just puts his arm around him and he says, I want you guys to know Thessalonica is an amazing church. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always, now listen, we didn't put it on the screen because there's a lot of text to put on the screen today. So if you just want to listen, you can. Your version of the Bible may be a little bit different from mine, and that's okay. You can follow along. Uh, I would challenge you maybe in the new year to bring hard copy of God's Word in with you. That'll create less distractions for you, less opportunities for you. But some of you, maybe that's easier to read. I get that. So we're just you can listen, you can read along, but here we go. Ready? Verse 2. Paul says, we always thank God for all of you, and we pray for you constantly. And we pray to our God and Father about you. We think of your, watch this, faithful work. Everybody just say faith. And your loving deeds. Say love. And the enduring hope. Say hope. Faith, love, and hope. That's the three characteristics that really define the church at Thessalonica. Faith and love and hope. Remember those three things, okay? He says you have that because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power, dunamis, dynamite. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe suffering that it brought to you. In this way, in the way that you suffered, you imitated both us and the Lord. Paul says, we suffered because of Jesus. Jesus suffered because of Jesus. You suffer now because of Jesus. Verse 7, as a result, you've become an example. To all the believers in Greece, throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. Think about that. This is a new church, right? And Paul only got to spend three Sabbaths with them. But he says, already, you're, you're impacting this entire region. What a great work that God was doing. Verse 8, Paul says, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. Paul's going, I'm trying to be a trailblazer. I'm trying to take the gospel to people that have never heard about Jesus. And every time we show up to some new place, they're telling us about you. Paul's going, I can't even find somebody that I get to tell about Jesus for the first time because Thessalonica people have already beaten me to the gospel punch. Isn't that amazing? This is what he's telling them. You're an amazing church. These are his friends, right? And they're sad. And this is what he has to say to his friends. He says, we don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Here's the deal. They believe Jesus is coming back, but they don't understand that. They're confused about some of that. They're not sure what Jesus coming back really means for their friends who've died. 
They don't really know what that means for family members that have died, for people that have been killed because of their faith, and they feel this huge sense of loss and this huge sense of separation from those they love. And they might even be questioning, am I ever going to see them again? Is this it? Is this the end? In fact, it's possible that Paul was just beginning to teach on that particular doctrine when he had to get out of Thessalonica quick-like. And he never got to finish that. And so they're sort of left hanging, not knowing what has happened to these people that have died and to people who are going to die or us when we die. And one of the reasons maybe they're discouraged and confused is because we know that false teachers had come into Thessalonica and they had caused a lot of confusion and a lot of doubt. They had circulated some phony letters, fake letters to the church, claiming that they were from Paul. And these letters were confusing, and they were inconsistent and untruthful and upsetting to the people. And there were other people who were in the ears of the believers at Thessalonica who were saying, Paul is a phony. He's a fraud. He's, he's a con man. He's just in this for personal gain. He's just in this to make money. And, and so why should you believe anything this man has ever said to you? Your, your family member, your friend, they died. And you believe what Paul's got to say about that? Now, Paul in chapter 2, he wants to address that. He's just gotten through saying, you guys are an amazing church. But now he wants to say, I want you guys to know I'm an authentic leader. I'm legit. I'm the real deal. This is not Paul tooting his horn. This is Paul saying, I need you to know that what you're believing is true. And I want you to know that it's true because I want you to be confident in who brought this message to you. So chapter 2 is all about Paul as an authentic leader. First, he, he describes himself as a faithful messenger. He's faithful as a messenger. He says, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you is not a failure, obviously. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi. He gets to Thessalonica, and they're still healing up from the beating that he and Silas took on their back, right? From, 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 from the whipping that they had taken. And he said, you know how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Who does that to get money? So you can see, he says, verse 3, so you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. In other words, Paul says the only thing we got paid for doing what we do is we got paid with a beatdown. And that happens again and again. He says, verse 4, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news, the gospel. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery. You know what flattery is? Flattery is when you say something to somebody's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. It's the opposite of gossip. Gossip is, I'll say something behind somebody's back that I won't say to their face. Paul says, we didn't come to you saying something to your face, trying to butter you up, trying to flatter you, as you well know. He said, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you or from anyone else. Paul's this authentic leader. And he says, I want you to know we've been faithful as messengers. And then he's been gentle to them. Gentle even, you could say, like a mother. Verse 7, he says, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. 
But instead, we were like children among you, or we were like a mother, feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news or gospel, but we shared our own lives too. In other words, Paul says, we didn't come to you guys looking to get. We came to y'all looking to give. And you know that's how we lived with you. We, we cared for you like a mother, an authentic leader, faithful messenger, gentle mother. And he's concerned like a father. Look at verse 9. He says, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how we worked hard among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. And you yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy for he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. Paul says, this is the way we, we dealt with you. This is the way we cared for you and the way we loved you like a mother, like a father, and like brothers and sisters. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, and then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. Let's get down to verse 17. It's almost like the people are saying, but, but Paul, if you really loved us like that, why didn't you come back? Where, where are you? This, we, we, we're, we're confused. Paul continues to answer that. In verse 17, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. What's Paul saying to these people who are so sad, so stuck in their grief? He's saying, man, you guys are an amazing church. And I know there's been rumors out there about me, but I want you to know God is my witness. I've been an authentic leader before you. Chapter 3 is Paul's action plan. In the time that he could not personally be with them, he had not forgotten about them. He was very intentional to care for them and minister to them and serve them. And Paul had an action plan. He didn't abandon them. Here's what his action plan was. Paul sent them the best he had. Paul sent them the best that he had. He says, finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens and we sent Timothy. He's the best guy I got. And I sent Timothy to visit you. He's our brother and God's co-worker, in proclaiming the good news of Christ, we sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. Don't you wish you had a friend like Paul? How about we try to be friends like Paul? How about that as a 2022 resolution? God, make me a friend like Paul. We think about Paul being this fiery preacher, this great biblical scholar, right? Man, what a friend this guy is. He says, but you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come. And they did, as you well know. That is why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. But now, guys, Timothy just walked through my door. 
He's got the dust of Thessalonica on his sandals. He's just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. Despite all the garbage you've heard about us, you haven't bought in, you believe that, you believe us, and and you want to see us, verse 7. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you've remained strong in your faith. And it gives us new life to know that you're standing firm in the Lord. This was Paul's action plan. I can't be with you, but here's my plan. I'm going to send you the best that I have. But not only that, I'm going to pray for you as much as I can. That's step two to his action plan. I'm going to pray for you as much as I can. Look at verse 9. He says, how we thank God for you. What is that? That's a prayer. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter to God's presence. What is entering to God's presence? Praying. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you. Asking, another word for prayer, asking God to let us see you again, to fill the gaps in your faith. Four times in just that couple of lines, Paul says, I've been praying for you, praying for you, praying for you, and praying for you. This has been my action plan, to send you the best that I have and to pray for you as much as I can. And then he stops talking about praying for them, and he actually starts to pray. He stops writing, and he starts to pray. Isn't that cool? Their their pastor, so to speak, just says, hey, right now I just want to pray for you. And he says, may God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. What a prayer. And you see how he ended that prayer? He said, Jesus is coming again. Paul reminds him, Jesus is coming back. But again, what that means for their loved ones that have gone on, they're not sure. There's question marks that they have that's contributed to the grief and the sorrow that they have. They don't understand all that that means. But now, hopefully, the people's doubts and questions about Paul have been alleviated. And maybe now they're feeling a little more uplifted, right? Wouldn't you? And encouraged. And so Paul turns his attention now from encouragement to instruction. He starts to give them some directions. Listen to this. There comes a point in all of our sadness, there comes a point in all of our grief that somebody needs to come into our life and say, here's the next step we're going to take. One of the things I always tell people in grief is let's not make any big decisions right now. Let's just take a a step tomorrow that's about an inch in distance. That's all. Just some baby steps. Have you ever had a friend in your darkest moment, your saddest moment, the time that your grief was the heaviest, a friend that stepped into your life and said, hey, I want to help you find some way to walk through this and provide some guidance for you. This is what Paul begins to do. Grief has been known to send some people down a bad path, right? You've probably seen that. People begin to... uh, because of their grief and their brokenheartedness, make some bad decisions and choices. Paul doesn't want that to happen to these people, so he wants to aim them in the right direction. And that's what chapter 4 is all about, targets to aim for. What's Paul doing here? He's cutting through the fog for them and trying to give them some clarity in the midst of their sadness. The first thing he tells them is to aim for holiness. Aim for holiness. Holiness just means to be set apart. Don't be like the world. Thessalonica was a dark place. It was an immoral city. And Paul says, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we've taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. You'll see that pattern from Paul. He's a great pastor in this way, a great leader in this way. He knows that whatever you celebrate gets replicated. 
What, we, what gets celebrated gets replicated. So here he says, you're living in a way that pleases God, but keep doing that. I'm celebrating that, but keep doing that even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, God's will is for you to be holy. People in sorrow and grief need to hear that. Listen, follow Jesus, be holy, stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passions like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins, as we have solemnly warned you before God. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is Rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul says, listen, I know that your world's really foggy and it's dark and hard and you're grieving and sorrowful right now. But listen, here's the target to aim for. Be holy. Don't don't just say, what does it matter now? I'm going to throw my hands up and live however I want to live. Paul says, no, aim for holy. Second thing, aim for love. Verse 9, he said, but we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. For God himself has already taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Hear what he just did again? Well, it gets celebrated, it gets replicated. He's going, you're doing this so good. Now do it some more. Right? That's what he's saying. That's, that's good child-rearing practice, by the way, too. All right? So he says, aim for holy, aim for love. And then he says, aim for respectable. If I was writing the letter, here's how I would have written it. Don't be doofuses. Because that's essentially what he's going to say here. He says, verse 11, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business. All God's people said, amen. Then do it, God's people. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands. Just as we've instructed you, this is what these people need to hear. They don't know what to do next. And Paul's giving them targets to aim for. Live respectably. Then people who are not believers, he says, will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. This is the way of God, by the way. This is the path of a Christ follower. It's not to live in a way that you have to be dependent upon somebody else. Certainly there's going to be anomaly seasons in your life. I just went through one of those where my wife had to wait on me hand and foot, and I had to depend on her. But as a rule of thumb, we should be Christ followers who can stand on our own two feet who aren't afraid to roll up our sleeves and to do a good job and to work hard. And Paul's given this great instructions to these people. I know it's hard, but aim for, aim for holy and aim for love and aim for respectable. And then it's almost like he said all of that to set them up for this. He says, aim for hope. Tears rolling down their cheeks, right? They're, they're going, I will work, Paul. I'll mind my own business. I won't sleep around. I'll love people. I'll do all that, Paul. And then Paul goes, now let's aim for hope. Cheeks are still wet. Graves are being dug. And the Holy Spirit says, Paul, write this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. They're coming back, y'all. They're coming back with Jesus when Jesus comes back. He says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. This is not given to me from an angel or some earthly messenger. Paul said, from God's lip to your ears, this is directly from the Lord, that we who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an 
archangel with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them. I love those two words. We are with them. We who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words. What a friend! He says, man, I know you're sad, and I know there is grief, and I know you are wondering, are you ever going to see these people that you love so much again? And Paul is saying, because of Jesus, absolutely, definitely, yes, and amen. And notice Paul doesn't tell them to stop grieving. The grief goes on. He just simply says, don't grieve like people who don't know Jesus grieve. They have no hope, but you do. So we grieve with hope. For us, death is only a brief separation. We will be together again. As you can imagine, his friends in Thessalonica are standing a little taller. Countenance is changing a little bit. There's a little more radiance in their eyes now, and their hearts are finding comfort. What's First Thessalonians told us? Hey, church, you're an amazing church. And I just want you to know for your sake, I've been an authentic leader to you. And when I couldn't be with you, I had an action plan that was for your good. And I've, I've given you now targets to aim your life for. And now I want to tell you to live wide awake. Chapter 5, living wide awake. First thing he says is live ready. Live ready. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure. Then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. So Paul says, be ready. Live awake. Don't sleep on this. Be ready. Live ready. And then secondly, live radiantly. He says, verse 4, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you're all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night, so be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live forever with him. So in encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing he did it again right while he gets celebrated gets replicated keep doing these things then he says live respectfully your brothers and sisters honor those who are your leaders in the lord's work this is this is the pastors i would say really pay attention to this church <laughs> they work hard among you and they give you spiritual guidance show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peaceably with each other you want to bless your pastors this year in 2022 just get along with each other just be at peace with each other. And then he says, live restoratively. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to admonish or warn those who are lazy. You want to restore those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. You want to restore those who are afraid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Live restoratively. And then he says, live relentlessly. Notice what he says, always be joyful. That's relentless joy. Never stop praying, relentless prayers. Be thankful in all circumstances. That's relentless thanksgiving. For this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. And then he says, live receptively. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit, but be receptive. Do not scoff at prophecies. Be receptive. But test everything that is said. Don't just throw it out because you don't like it. Don't just throw it out because you don't understand it. 
Be receptive, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. And then Paul has this affectionate conclusion. He says, now may the God of peace make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen for he calls you. He who calls you is faithful. Now look, for them, maybe this is what they need to hear, right? To put death in the right perspective. Maybe this is going to help them now grieve in the right way. And get back to living their lives the way God wants them to live their lives until they meet Jesus in the rapture or in death. So what's Timothy do? He delivers this letter to the Thessalonians there. And it helped them quite a bit, I'm sure. But here's what it also did. Answers have a way of creating more questions. Have you ever noticed that? And so Paul's letter to them just surfaced more questions. And I'm, I'm running out of time, y'all. But I want to get 2 Thessalonians. It's only three chapters. Can I have your blessing? Do we just go for it? Okay, if you didn't bless it, you can get up and leave and we'll all boo you as you go out the door, but I'm going for it, man. So there seem to be questions and concerns and a fear among the people when Timothy gets there and he begins to understand they're freaking out. They're not just sad, but they're afraid and they're losing hope because what they're thinking is they've missed the rapture and they're stuck in the day of the Lord, also known as the tribulation understandably, I know why they would think that, right? Because their life stunk. It was hard. It was difficult. People were against them. The world was against them. They were being persecuted. And they're looking around going, Jesus must have come and he left us. The tribulation is broken out. And here we are. And what are we going to do? We've been left behind. We've missed the bus. Any of you ever thought you sort of missed the bus in life? That God had moved on without you? Maybe you came in today thinking God's already moved on without me somehow. Not that he's come in rapture and you missed it, but he's just moved on. You messed up. You failed. Whatever happened, or you've been insignificant, so God's just sort of moved on. Maybe their confusion was back to some of these false teachers that had come in. And those questions fueled their fears. And those fears were causing them to lose hope. And they feel abandoned by God. So Timothy returns to Paul. And he gives Paul this report. He says, Paul, they're, they're scared. And they think they've missed out. And they think that the day of the Lord has started. And it's hard for them to find hope. And so Paul picks up the pen and the paper and the envelope again. And he writes a second letter. First letter was Paul talking about his biggest victory, which was the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, it's about the Thessalonians' biggest questions. The questions that are weighing heavy on their heart. Look at verse 3. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you. Do you remember the three words I had you repeat back earlier? Faith, love, and hope. Listen how he opens up this letter. He opens it up differently. Because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. What's missing? Hope. Read between the lines. Paul knows something's missing now. Hope's missing. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, seems to be the answer to the first question they've been asking. First question they've been asking is this, Paul, why are we suffering? And Paul's answer is basically this, because there's two kingdoms at work here. The kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And Paul writes here with kingdom kind of language. He, it feels like wartime. Suffering is certainly a part of war. And these believers are in a spiritual war that carries with it physical ramifications, just like for me and you today. Here's what he says in verse 5. He says, And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. 
Kingdoms are colliding, he says. Life can be hard, but God's, God's not forsaken you. He's not abandoned you. Verse 7, and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, here, here's that war language, right? He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God. Listen, he's not describing what he was describing in 1 Thessalonians. Stay with me here, Sunday school class. 1 Thessalonians, he's describing the rapture. Right? Jesus is going to come for the church. Dead in Christ, rise first. We who are alive may be caught together and meet him in the air. Second Thessalonians, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the second coming. The rapture and the second coming are two different things. Second coming, Jesus coming back to the earth to establish his kingdom is what's in view here, which is preceded by this time of tribulation, also known as the day of the Lord. So he's coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God, and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus, they will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe, and this includes you, for you believe what we told you about him. Chapter 2, what's the question of chapter 2? They're asking Paul, hey, are we in the tribulation? Is is this why it's bad now? Paul says, now, dear brothers and sisters, chapter 2, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we'll be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't believe them. Paul says it hasn't happened because certain things haven't happened yet. There's things that have to happen before the day of the Lord starts. So he says, verse 3, Don't be fooled by what they say, for the day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who's the man of lawlessness, prophecy prose? The Antichrist. We read about him a lot in 2020 as we were working through the book of Revelation. The tribulation's not coming. The day of the Lord's not coming until this man of lawlessness is revealed. He's saying to the Thessalonians, this hasn't happened for you yet. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you and you know what's holding him back for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. I personally believe who's holding the Antichrist back is the Holy Spirit living through the believers called the church. When the church is removed, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is removed, and then this man of lawlessness is unleashed on the earth. Then the man of lawlessness, verse 8, will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him, amen, hallelujah, with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. Revelation, he comes in on that white horse. He's a fake, he's a phony, he's a fraud. He'll use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. It's like a spell has been cast on them and they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. They got another question. Okay, Paul, we get it. So, so should, we, should we be freaking out about this? Should we be afraid? And Paul says, no, don't be afraid of this. He's going to tell them four reasons to be afraid. If you had not written down anything else, write this down. This is my New Year's message to you. I got to 1034 to preach my true sermon today. Four points. God loves you, God chose you, God saved you, and God has a future for you. 
God loves you, God chose you, God saved you, and God has a future for you. So you don't have to be afraid. Verse 13, he says, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. God loves you. We are always thankful that God chose you. God chose you to be among the first, to experience salvation. God saved you, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. And now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your future. You're going to be glorified, made perfect with God forever. Listen, if you're a believer today, you're a Christian today, grab onto those four truths today. God loves you. He chose you. He saved you. And he's got a perfect future for you. And on the heels of that, Paul says, verse 15, with all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. And it's almost like you can hear Paul say, let me just pray for you. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and wonderful hope comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing that you do and say. And that's my prayer for you today. Grace Life, just highlight it. Let's just pray that for each other this year. And then chapter 3, they're going, okay, Paul, Thank you, brother. We're, 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 our grief is lightening up. We're not afraid. We get it. We got, we got clarity. We got understanding here. Now what? What do we do until that day? Paul answers that. First thing he tells him is pray. This is what you do in the meantime. Pray. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you to pray for us. Pray that the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as when it came to you. Pray too that we'll be rescued from wicked and evil people, for not everyone is a believer, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you, and he'll guard you from the evil one. So he says, pray until Jesus comes. Pray. Church, Grace Life, 2022, hello, until Jesus comes or until you croak. Pray. Secondly, until Jesus comes or until you croak, work. Verse 6, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so you, we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we want to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives. This is followers of Jesus. He's going, some of you say you're following Jesus, but you're a bum. You're lazy. You don't want to work. And you're meddling in other people's business. Those two, by the way, go hand in hand. Right? If you're nosy and you're in everybody else's business, it's because you ain't working enough. you got too much energy left over at the end of the day, so you're using it. Meddling in everybody's business. He says, we command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, he's just loved on them, and now he's going, straighten up, y'all. All right? We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. And as for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Pray, work, until Jesus comes or you croak. Pray, work. And then he says, watch. Watch out for each other. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they'll be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. And so there's all these questions they've had that Paul's been answering. And now he finishes with one big exclamation point. He says, now may the Lord of Peace himself, give you his peace at, watch this, at all times in every situation. The Lord be with you all. And then he says, and in my translation, it's all caps. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. I do this in all my letters to prove they are from me. Now you know why he did that. And he says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grief and fear. And hopelessness. 
That's what was going on at Thessalonica. That's what's going on across this room today. Grief and fear and a diminishing sense of hope. And you know, in our world, people are struggling, and maybe some of you even struggling to know how to deal with that. And many can't seem to find a way. Some take all of that and they just try to numb it away. And they slowly but surely destroy their lives. Some choose another path. They choose to ease the pain quickly and abruptly and fatally and finally. But if you're a child of God today, that's not our path. Our path leads us to a place where there's comfort in the grief and in the sadness and hope for the hopelessness. Jesus came. And he conquered death and the grave. And he's coming back. And ain't no grave going to keep a daughter or son of his down. And if you're a child of God today, you can trade in this year your hopelessness for his hope. Your grief for his grace. Your fear for faith. And Grace Life, if you don't remember anything this year, I want you to remember that you are loved. You are chosen. Through Christ you are saved. And you have a glorious future. Let's pray. God, we bow before you so thankful for a friend like Paul. I don't know that he was aware that he would have friends 2,000 years down the road that needed to hear what he said to his friends at Thessalonica, but we sure needed to hear it today, God. And I want, church, I want to, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, just let's make this interactive as we wrap out of this and move on today. But I want to pray over three groups of people today. And if you fit that group, then I just want you to be brave enough just to stand and let's just pray over one another today, okay? But if you're here today and you kind of relate to 1 Thessalonians, there's grief, there's sadness, there's sorrow that you're dealing with right now. And you would say, I need God's help in this. Would you just stand right where you are? And we're going to pray over one another in just a moment. Or maybe today you're like the believers in 2 Thessalonians. There's anxiety and there's fear. It feels like hope is being sucked out of your soul. And maybe you wouldn't even admit it, but it's even possible that you've wondered, God, have you left me? If, if you relate to what they needed in that second letter, would you just stand in your fear, in your worry, your doubt, and your diminishing hopelessness? And the third group of people, and this is going to take some real big courage here, but this letter is written to Christians. Nothing I've said today really is for a person who doesn't know Jesus. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you've heard enough today to say, I want to know Jesus. I want to know that death is not the end. I want to know God. I want to trust Christ to save me today. Would you just stand wherever you may be today? 
God, you see our hearts and you know our lives. And there is none in all the world who loves us like you. We rejoice today in the midst of hard circumstances that you do love us. You chose us. You've saved us through Christ. And we have a glorious future with you. Give us grace to hold on to that today and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, let's all stand. God, I pray for those right now who are standing in grief and sorrow that you would touch them in a special way, give them peace and comfort. I pray for those with fear and worry, with hope draining out of them, that they would be confident of you and your love and your care over their lives today. And if there's one here today, God, who's never trusted Christ, I pray before they leave this place today, God, that they would.